0: So you're the rough lot. I mean, they, they told me that the first service was going to be absolutely fantastic last night. It was going to tail off. Is that right? <laughs> We're going to read from Micah chapter 6. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation... Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, cancelled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Yes, I I am English. (laughs) I had the dubious privilege of heading the evangelical churches in the United Kingdom between 1983 and 97 and then came to uh, America to head up World Relief, which is the relief and development arm of the National Association of Evangelicals. So it's 43,000 US churches helping churches around the world to actually live their lives uh, for the Lord Jesus. Uh, People often say to me, what's the difference between um, the Christian agencies, like World Vision and Samaritan's Purse and Opportunity and Compassion, etc.? Well, the answer is, I was brought to America to stop World Relief being a Christian agency. We had to take the Christian out of it because there were enough Christian agencies and America didn't need any more. And although World Relief is the oldest one, uh, we've managed to stop it being a Christian agency. That job is now done, and so I've retired as president and will be leaving on on March the 31st. You may say, well, why would you want to take the Christian out of an agency? Because it was never meant to be a Christian agency, it was meant to be a church agency. You may say, well, what's the difference? But well, the difference is that a Christian agency sends the resources from here and helps uh, around the world to meet human need. A church agency doesn't do that. I mean, if you want to get money to the tsunami victims, don't give it to me. Because your money will not get to the poor. That's the difference. You are not looking comfortable. What will happen with your money is it will get to the church in Sri Lanka or in India or in Indonesia and they will use it, not us. And I need someone who's wealthy, I mean I'm going to have to explain this, someone who's rich, you see, you look like a man of substance,
1: forgive me (laughs) asking this of
0: you, the gentleman just turning away, Uh, do you have any money on you? I, I don't mean these silly dollar bills, have you got anything substantial? No. Um, This gentleman again turning away. Do you have any money? I I want some solid cash. Somebody trust me. Do you, sir? No. Someone with some cash. You, sir? You only cash? Trust me. Trust me. I'm very trustable, but I need some money. Big. 10, 20, that sort of. Thanks. The more the merrier. Thank you. Now, I, I want you to help me. If we can count that together: 20, 25, 30, 40, 60. $60. I made it. Yeah, 65, you're right. <laughs> I'm, I'm really great. What's your name? Kevin. Kevin. Thanks, Kevin, very much. Thank you very much for the donation of $650. You see, it, you gave me $65 and I'm going to give it back to you. But if I put it in my pocket, it would be 650 When I give it back to you, you're only going to get 65 And the difference is with the church agency. Because, you see, if I was to send someone from here, I'd have to pay $60,000 for an AIDS worker to go from here. In Africa, it costs me $1,600 a year. Trained, qualified. I can have a nurse for $600. If you work through the church, your brothers and sisters can do so much with so little.
1: Tonight we're going to talk
0: about AIDS in here. At 7.20 tonight. And it will be all the stuff you'll never hear from CNN. You'll never hear from ABC. It's the biggest disaster facing the planet for the last 700 years. It's also the biggest single ray of hope this world has had. Because AIDS is transforming... Uh, the the Christian history of of Africa. And I want to share with you tonight the other side of the story. But the other side of the story uh, with a church agency is the money goes through the church. What that does is you always get the gospel going with the social action. Why would I want to save the life of a little three-year-old African boy with a bloated stomach if all he was going to get was eternity without Jesus? And what can we do if we trust the church and empower them, equip them and train them? So we have 20,000 staff in Mozambique nowadays. We used to have a couple of hundred. There's 20,000 now. Three of them have got white faces. Because it's the church rising up and making a difference. And that's how 65 becomes 600. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. Appreciate it. It's so important that we get hold of it, you see, because there aren't going to be any American Christians in heaven anyway. Don't worry, there there won't be any British ones either. Uh, I think that's really sad, actually. I think it could lower the cultural tone for eternity. Sorry, you're you're not going to get the humour. But (laughs) There won't be any Asian Christians in heaven, or any African Christians in heaven, or any Latin Christians in heaven. There's just going to be, drawn from every kindred, tribe and nation, a a multinational, many-membered corporate bride fit for a king. Because in Jesus, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no bond or free. We're just going to be family for eternity. And it's lovely to actually be with you today. When I finish with World Race, I told you, I, I'm a churchman. What am I going to do? My wife and I have always said, we'll spend the last ten years doing local church. So I started as a pastor in Connecticut on April the 1st. Uh, and you may by now be saying, well, he's really got an accent and I, I don't have an accent. My son Gavin is here now. He still lives and preaches in Britain. Gavin has got an accent. No. no. Gavin will tell you I don't have an accent. Now you do. <laughs> now you definitely do. Now don't get angry with me, it's your country. But it's my language. And I hope you've got the message that World Relief is churches here helping churches there to make history and change their nations for Jesus. I want the church to be church in Malawi, in Mongolia, in Mozambique. And that's what we do is we help the church here to help the church there to make history. You may say, why is that important? Because in Sri Lanka the church has been being persecuted for the last seven or eight years. If the church can rise up and confront the victims of the tsunami and help them, it will not only restore the honour to the name of Jesus, it will not only be the most cost-effective way of helping the victims, it may also get the government to change its view about the church. I think that's good news. And what I wanted to do with you very simply this morning was to try to take what I think is one of the single most important things, which is ask what you're going to do with the rest of your life. I wanted to ask how we really are going to grapple uh, with, the, with what it means for the church to pursue his fame, not ours. I believe for too long Christianity has been depicted by us as a nice, cheap, easy way of earning God's favour and getting our way into heaven. I don't believe that we are here to make our way into heaven as a sort of last gasp attempt. I believe that we are here to change this world for Jesus. I believe that what the living God wants to do through us is to take hold of our lives and so transform us that we will live for Him, serve Him, love Him and make a difference so that this world will never be the same because you sat here today because you were through this missions conference this last week, because what God wants to do is raise up an army of ordinary people who will transform this planet. I believe that the only hope for this world is Jesus. I believe the only truth in this world is Jesus. And I believe that it is only by the grace of Jesus, work through his body, the church, who are the hands and feet of Jesus, that we can change this world. You're not Africans, obviously. (laughs) We will try to extract a bit more response out of you. Are you still there? Yeah. Good. What Micah chapter 6 does is it works in three sections. The first five verses, the verses that we read, deal with your past. Then the next three verses that contain that famous verse, do justice, love mercy and walk humbly with your God. They deal with your present. And then the last verses of the chapter deal with your future. So let's start with those first five verses where you've got God and Israel standing in a court of law and opposing each other. And in verse 1, God says to Israel, What have I done? What have I done to you? And there's a very long silence. It doesn't say it in verse 1, but there is, because Israel's got no response. And so God starts to heap it up. What did I do? Was it giving Moses to lead you? What did I do? Was it giving Aaron to teach you? What did I do? Was it giving Miriam to lead you in worship and dance? What did I do? Was it the wonderful acts I did in the wilderness between Shittim and Gilgal? What did I do? Was it silencing Balaam, son of Beor, when he was going to prophesy against you? Israel, what have I done? And it really is powerful stuff. Because God is trying to say to Israel, why are you ungrateful? Why have you forgotten Do you remember what it was like when you first met Jesus? Do you remember what he's done in your life since then? Can you register the change that the King of Kings has brought for you? Are you thrilled with what it means to know and love Jesus? (laughs) It's so easy to forget. Now, I'm going to really walk on dangerous territory. I fully acknowledge that I'm British. But this is California. I love preaching in California. You are hard to get a response out of because you are so laid back that a strong gust of wind will make you fall over. (laughs) But that also is very advantageous for a Brit because it's not so dangerous to be here as some of the places I preach in. I mean, I preach in Boston every year. The last time was two weeks ago. That's dangerous. As a Brit, you have to be really careful what you say. I mean, you mustn't mention tea. (laughs) Particularly not in close conjunction to the word parties. (laughs) And I want to take my life in my hands with you because I want to say that I think America's in grave danger of forgetting. I think America's in grave danger of forgetting who it is and what it's here for. You see, we forget that 80% plus of the resources for the church in the world, the Lord Jesus has entrusted to the church in America. Did you know that? He gave you about 20% of the need to spend it on. That means 60% is surplus. And the reason is that He trusted you. And He trusted me. He knew that in the 21st century there'd be one superpower left, and He trusted us to know how to give from our resources, our understanding, our prayer, our finance, so that the rest of the world would not suffer, but that we would know where to give and how to give. He trusted us. And he calls on us not to forget. And I believe that America has got to be very careful about forgetting. Because I do not believe that America became great because of Americans. And I don't believe that America became great because of the leadership of Americans. I believe America became great because of the favour of God. I believe America became great because of Jesus. And I think America is in grave danger of forgetting it. And I keep seeing these signs, God bless America, and I think, oh, he has enormously. I don't think that's the issue. I think the question is, will America bless God? Will we actually pause and recognise that what we have is a gift of God? that what we've received is the blessing of God. What we're living under is the trust and favour of God. And that this nation uniquely in the world has been under the hand of God. Don't forget it. Because if you do, he'll move his hand. You still there? Has this Brit got away with that? And so God says through Micah, don't forget Israel. Don't let it pass from your mind. Don't lose it. And I've seen nations around the world that, to my amazement, haven't forgotten. My favorite church in the world is the church in Iran. Or should I say, Iran? Uh, The church in Iran is fantastic. I mean, recently they arrested all the church leaders. And there was a picture on CNN of the secret church in Tehran, it's a lovely church i preached there, it's, uh, got, it's secret, so it's got a huge cross outside, it elevated and illuminated. <laughs> and CNN kind of do this picture, this is the secret church in Tehran, and I thought, oh yes, so it is. <laughs> and, and the kind of attitude that the Christians have there is, is just fantastic. They are an incredible people because they're ready to live or to die for Jesus. It really doesn't matter. I mean, the bishop uh, said to me once, he said, Clive, secret police don't understand me. And I feel sorry for the secret police, personally, (laughs) because he said, they don't understand me. He said, uh, I say, what can you do to us? Put us in jail? More people to tell of Jesus. Close down the church? You can't do that. Only Jesus closes church. We'll open in a home. Kill us? Yes. Blood of the martyrs. Seed of the church. (laughs) I did the memorial service for his brother when his brother was martyred ten years ago. I did the memorial in London. You see, he knows what he's talking about. But once in Iran, there were nine million Christians and they haven't forgotten that the body of Jesus isn't in a tomb, he's alive. That the Son of God didn't die for nothing, he died to bring salvation. That the living God is alive and moving and in Iran, they've remembered it. Brothers and sisters, what you're going to see now is just the church in Iran. It's just the kind of way Iranian believers behave. When you see Pastor Vartan, he didn't tell the old man to pray after him and he didn't tell his son to pray after him. God just did a miracle. That's quite normal. Because when there's a legacy of the hand of God and his people haven't forgotten, miracles come next. We're going to go together to Iran right now. The city of Bam in southeast Iran was one of those ordinary spots. and then just after Christmas 2003, 5:28 in the morning, the world exploded. The earthquake destroyed nearly 70 percent of the buildings in the city. A population of 100,000 people was decimated. There are nearly 40,000 dead already. and who knows what the final total is going to be? If ever there was a moment, When the Church of Iran faced an opportunity, it's here in Bam. Because Bam had no church. But in the aftermath of destruction, the church has arrived to help rebuild the city and to start church here in Bam today. I've just had one night in a refugee tent. One night in the camp, that's enough for me. For the people here, it's one night among so many. And whether or not we can rebuild a future for them, well, that's something we're going to have to work out together. This is what you call a good beginning. It's no more than a beginning. Why should someone who once had a home and then suffered in an earthquake have to spend their life in a tent? Why should they be dependent on food that we can rush into them during an emergency? Surely they can have a life again. That's what the church in Iran believes. They want to offer that life to the people here in Bam, but they need our help if they're going to be able to do
1: it.
0: My name is Vartan Avanesyan, and as a pastor in Tehran, I'm here in Bam because of God doing something to do for this city and From the church of iran it's privileged for me to see our brothers here encourage us help us and pray together for the kingdom of god to be here and all of the world
1: the iranian church
0: they wanted to help the little children they wanted to give them coats and shoes world relief provided that it was your money we're so grateful to you but when the church in the country says we must help now and tomorrow and the next day, of course, we're there to
1: support what the church wants. Amen.
0: This dear man is a patriarch. We've just prayed with him. And he's prayed spontaneously because he longs for help. He's lost over 15 of his family. He spent his life making windows and making doors. A hard-working artisan. Wakes up one morning and everything is gone. The only hope is when church comes and says, let us pray with you. Let us care and see what we can do to help. These are the innocent victims of this awful disaster. These are the people for whom we must pray, with whom we must work and whom we must help. Because we all have our origin with the same father. His heart bleeds, and so do ours this day. I said to Bartan because there were 26 Christians in Bam and they all died in the earthquake. I said, if I can get help from the American churches, will you rebuild the church here? He said, oh, church has started already, Clyde. We've been here three days, haven't you noticed? I said, no. He said, oh, church started two days ago. People started to pray in the name of Jesus. Church started. You see, you pray in the name of Jesus, you'll live for Jesus. You live for Jesus, you may die for Jesus. You die for Jesus, you're going to be with Jesus. Church started. Because there's a heritage, there's a memory, there's a past, and that past is the cause of the present you then come into. Two of the young guys in the church were sent by the bishop to go north, uh, to go north to a village with a car full of Bibles to sell the Bibles. They left at five in the morning because it's too early for the secret police. They were just getting out of the the city when they they suddenly realised they didn't know which road to take. And then the steering wheel jammed because there was no one around for them to ask. And they were forced into a right-hand turn. As they turned the corner, there was a man standing there. So they thought, we'll stop, we'll pull the car in, we'll unjam the steering wheel, we'll ask him what the road is. They got out and they said, what's the road to so and He said, you've got Bibles. Now they knew it was a life sentence to be caught like they were. So they said, "But well, we don't know you. He said, no, and you've got Bibles. They said, but you could be secret police. He said, yes, and you've got Bibles. He said, I pray for Bible for village. God say, you go Tehran, stand on this corner, five in the morning, I send Bibles. You got
1: Bibles?
0: (laughs) It happens for this lot with such monotonous regularity, it's not worth disbelieving it. They said, yes, we got Bibles. He said, good, I got life savings. He got $60. They gave him $100 for the Bibles, which is all they got. He put them on his shoulder, walked off. They'd said, we'll come and preach. He said, no, I'll Bible preach. One day you come preach Jesus. They got back in the vehicle, drove back to the bishop. How did they do that? Steering wheel wasn't jammed anymore. It's never jammed since. You see, miracles just go with it. There's a past, and it's a past that God has had his hand on. America, you've got a past. God has had his hand on you. And the present and the future is in your hands. And the world is waiting. And so Micah goes on, and in verse 6, He writes, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? It's sarcastic. He's just building it up. What does God want to make up for the way I've forgotten? Does he want all these offerings? Or what about child sacrifice? And modern biblical archaeologists have found in Israel the under the old altars dedicated to the pagan god Moloch, the god of the Ammonites. Under there they have found little clay pots stuffed with the skeletons of weak old baby boys. Israel offered her children and it made no difference. And then Micah writes this He showed you already, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And it's fantastic. He showed you in the Old Testament. He showed you in the Pentateuch, the first five books. He showed you in the Jewish law what he wants. And more recently, Amos has written a whole book on doing justice. Hosea's written a whole book on loving mercy. Isaiah's wrote, written a whole book on walking humbly before your God. But Micah is going to summon it all up in one wonderful expression. What does God want of you? He wants you to do justice, love mercy and walk humbly before him. And of course Micah got it wrong. And we now know better. We know that what God wants us is to read our Bible, pray and go to church. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with praying. If you love the living God, you'll talk to him. There's nothing wrong with going to church. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews says, don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. That's really important. Thomas missed out on the first meeting of the church, so he missed out on the Lord of the church. Don't fail when it comes to getting together. And don't miss out on reading your Bible. You want to live in God's world, God's way. Read God's Word. It's absolutely crucial. But reading your Bible, praying and going to church are not the evidence of your faith they're the benefits, they're the blessings of your faith, the evidence of your faith. What the world is waiting to see is that you do justice, love mercy, and you walk humbly with your God. What do they mean? Well, it's like going up a staircase, and Micah starts at the bottom. The lowest rung is doing justice, and it's not speak justice. It's not sign a petition or make a public statement. Justice is something you do and doing justice means giving people what they deserve, giving people what they should have the right to have. We're here to do justice, folks. When Mount Gongo erupted a volcano in Congo about three years ago, I was there straight afterwards, and one of the pastors told me of how one of his younger Christians, newly married, had been at home with his wife and the eruption took place. And when they checked on the situation, the lava was already pouring down the hillside and pouring towards the city of Goma where they lived. And so this young man in all the heat got his wife and said, darling, go ahead. Race ahead. Race to safety. This is where to go to. I will get your special things and come after you. So he went to the bed, he took a sheet off the bed and he got, went around the house and he got all his special things, poured them all into the middle of the sheet, twirled the sheet round, threw it across his shoulder and left to pursue his wife. And then he thought, what about the little old pastor? The retired pastor who lives down the road. I wonder if anyone will be with him. And he went down to the pastor's house and nobody was with the pastor. And so he tried to persuade the pastor to come too, and the old man just didn't quite know how to summon up the energy to do it. So what this young man did was he got the old pastor and he sort of hauled him halfway across one shoulder. He'd got his wife's special things over the other shoulder and he's staggering down the road. And he gets so far and the lava is coming behind him so in desperation he has to choose. And he takes the old man. And he carries him in what the British call a piggyback to safety. (laughs) Then he went back to get his wife's things, but the lava had got there first. So he went and found his wife and explained, and she said, how could you leave? That's my precious things for that stupid old man. And she left him. She left him. And he said, it was more important to do justice. To give people what they deserve, which is not their material possessions, but the right to life and the right to have what should be your birthright. Do justice. And then Micah takes it up a notch, love mercy. Hosea calls it loving kindness. It's the chesed of God. It's the loving kindness of God. And we're called to love mercy. Mercy. Mercy means giving people what they don't deserve. Now, I want to tell this story with great care because I very, very rarely ever use it in the church. I've used different stories, haven't I, at the other services. And I need to be very careful that I don't give the name of the country. How well are you acquainted with evangelism by rape? Evangelism by rape is used in a number of countries, but one country in particular... Uh, there are probably about four Christians for every thousand people in the population. And the majority faith tries to evangelize the young Christian girls when they're about 12. And they do it by getting their 11, 12, 13-year-old lads to go and rape the girls. Because in that culture, when you are raped, the guy who rapes you has to marry you. But then the male determines the faith you're brought up in. And so the 12-year-old is raped and then has to marry the boy and then has to adopt his faith and the children of the marriage have to be brought up in that faith. So now you get the meaning of evangelism by rape. What is done by some of the Christians is they run a little orphanage. We don't normally do orphanages because it's much better to extend family and community wherever you can. But in this context, uh, we run a very small orphanage for girls who may still have parents but the parents can't protect them. And they have to be educated, brought up in the knowledge and love of God and reared so they're ready for Christian husbands because otherwise the Christians would be exterminated by, by the means that are being employed. And it's a lovely, quiet, gentle ministry that has to be there. It's called loving mercy. In the middle of horror, in the middle of desperation, it's called actually caring for people and giving them what maybe they don't deserve, but giving them way, way, way above what humanly and human capacity would provide. You do justice. It means you give people what is their right. You love mercy. You give people what goes way beyond their right. And then the third one is walking humbly with your God. And the problem is when you do justice and you love mercy, you normally get proud of it. And that's why it's so important to walk humbly with your God. The danger in America is that we look at what we have the capacity to pray, the capacity to give, the capacity to care, the capacity to train. And we sometimes think we're superior. But when you go into other cultures, you see church as church could really be. Last year I was in Cambodia. And uh, there was this burning rubbish tip. It's sort of self-combustible. It just burns. And it's a huge, huge rubbish tip. And the people are using one-pronged forks and they're digging away at the metal, the tin and the plastic separating them, trying to earn enough money so they can buy the foot of a chicken. Then they can get the tendons out of the foot and you can cook the tendons and that's just about enough to live on. And as the adults are working away, the children are playing in the settlements all around. And they're inhaling the smoke and the dreadful stench. It takes about 20 years off their lives. It really is awful. And as they're working away at this, and as the kids are playing around and they're lying down with the pigs, I went to one of these settlements and I said to one of our staff, Why? Where's the church? And they said, Well, we haven't got one here. And I knew we'd planted planted about 500 churches in the last seven years around there. They said, we haven't got one here. I said, why not? They said, well, you haven't sent $50 yet. 65 would have been plenty. Plants a church. It then takes about $500 a year for three years to train the pastor. And then you've got church and you've got pastor trained and everything just happens in the language and in the culture. No Westerners allowed in because these people are illiterate. But the Westerners train and then we send the people in to pastor their own people. And it's fantastic. And they said, we don't have a church here. I said, where's the nearest? They said, oh, the other side of the dump. There's two. I said, can we go there? We walked round, and as we walked round, the stench lifted. And the smoke dispersed. And people started smiling at us. They started being happy and coming to greet us. And then when we got where the churches where everything was just wonderful. People were so warm, and I suddenly realised the stench was the same. And so was the smoke. But when you've got people who are walking humbly with their God who are loving their community, who are sharing and meeting people's needs, who are giving themselves for others. There is something so transforming about it that everything becomes different. Brothers and sisters, when you do justice, when you love mercy, and when you walk humbly with your God, you make history and you change your world. And that's the present that we're here for. And then Micah goes on from verse 9 and he deals with the future. Now, I have to tell you that I've not been allowed to say this. The question you're not allowed to ask in my trade is what's the most important, social action or the Gospel? So I've laughed and said, it's a bit hard preaching the Gospel to someone who's dead, so let's keep them alive and then we can explain the reason we did it It was Jesus. But I am now president of nothing. So I'll tell you what's the most important, social action or the Gospel. And I'll tell you what comes first. From verse 9, God is thundering at Israel. He says, unjust scales, uneven weights and balances. You even follow the example of King Ahab. He was furious at the uneven symmetry line of his boundary fence of his vineyard, so he had Naboth killed and stole his vineyard to restore the symmetry to the boundary fence of his own vineyard. And God thunders Israel, you'll be a byword for unjust practices throughout every generation. And your son's sacrifice to kill your firstborn will not make up for it. So God sent his firstborn, his only son, and he died. The only one who'd ever loved justice, who'd ever done justice, loved mercy and walked humbly with his God, gave his life. Why? Because you can't even do justice. Let alone love mercy or walk humbly with your God. You can't even give to people what they deserve. You can't do it. Because you can't, Jesus died. And he died not in order that you might read your Bible, pray and go to church. He died in order that when his spirit came and flooded your life, you would have the power to do justice, love mercy and walk humbly with him. What comes first? What's the most important? The proclamation of the gospel. Because you can't do social action without Jesus. Not in pure form. But when you've found Jesus... You don't find Jesus so that you can survive by yourself. An old Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, used to say, the Church of Jesus Christ is the only society on earth which exists entirely for the benefit of its non-members. You're not here to limp your way into heaven, you're here to change this world for Jesus. And he died so that you would have the strength to do justice, love mercy and walk humbly with him. And that's what comes first and the result of you finding Jesus is that you do those things and change your world. That's why he died. Jennifer lives in uh, Ongata Rungai, which is a dreadful slum on the outskirts of Nairobi. Her body was racked with a tubercular cough, and she said to me, "I always went to church, but it didn't do anything for me. I met this guy, and I went to church, but nothing changed." We were married eight years and then we divorced. We couldn't have children. I still went to church. She said, I started committing adultery for money but I still went to church. I had three children. I don't know the fathers of any but I still went to church. Then she said, last year I went to be tested because I got sick in March 2004 and I'm HIV positive. And it wasn't going to church anymore that was going to make the difference. So I gave my life to Jesus and went to church. Now I use every day to go and tell the people around me in the shacks around me about Jesus, how he's forgiven me, what he's done in my life. She said, would you take a message from me? And her body was racked with the tubercular cough again. She said, will you take a message from me to my brothers and sisters in America? I said, yeah. She said, will you tell them not to do what Jennifer did, not to waste their life. Tell them to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God to change their world, because that's what they're here for. I close with this. The British loved their concert halls. An impresario hired one for one night, gave it to a young student pianist. He played Bach and he played out of his skin. When he'd finished, the British forgot they were British. They stood. <laughs> they clapped, they cheered, some even stamped their feet, and the... Impresario went running around the back, he said, magnificent, incredible, fantastic, tremendous, play an encore. And the young man said, no. The Impresario said, they're standing for you, you must play an encore. The young man said, no, they're not. That old man at the back sitting. Oh, he doesn't know his music, said the Impresario. Oh, yes, he does, said the young man. That old man sitting's my teacher. If he was standing and everyone else was sitting, I'd play an encore. He's sitting, no encore. 2,000 years ago, a man named Stephen died. Now, you can't earn your salvation. That's settled by your response to crucified love. All you can earn is your reception in heaven. When Stephen died, his face shone as he forgave those killing him. His face shone as he saw the Jesus who's seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven. But Scripture doesn't say he saw Jesus sitting next to his Father. Scripture says he saw Jesus standing standing for one who lived for him, standing for one who died for him. Cornerstone. The only question is, are we going to live in such a way that as church, we're going to pursue his fame, not ours. As church, we're going to pursue his righteousness, not ours. As church, we're going to pursue his will, not ours. That as church, we're going to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, rather than bless and advance what we have in our. The only question is, when we get to heaven, cornerstone, is Jesus going to be sitting to say, welcome home? Or is he going to be standing to say, well done. You gave, you loved, you cared, you prayed. Together we changed our world. I want to be part of a church that gets Jesus standing because we pursued his